Amen. Amen. So God, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And again I say amen. So we're continuing through Hebrews. We've been in this book now for a half a year. I'd say we're doing pretty quick. We're doing pretty good. Hey, hey, it's not that bad. True that. We're in chapter 11, and the writer is still kind of working through. He's only two people into this hall of fame of faith, the great chapter on faith in Hebrews 11. And he's speaking about a faith that can get people, help people, empower people to persevere through life, persevere through the struggles and the doubts, and the pain, and, and even persecution, and things that are unknown, even just in the everyday grind of life. This is the faith that the author is speaking to, because the church he's speaking to is in the throes of things aren't going well. And the next person in the, the Hall of Fame is this guy by the name of Enoch. Now, we find a little bit of a story about Enoch in chapter 5 of Genesis. There's not a lot written about him, but he's kind of a pretty interesting guy. The writer in Hebrews mentions him, obviously, in chapter 11. And then there's a couple verses in Jude that kind of speaks to or who this guy Enoch was. Now, he's an old, uh, old Testament dude. He lived before the flood, so before Noah. He lived for 365 years, over three centuries now, the, the text in Genesis, it's only about 50, 55 words that describe his life. So here it is, Genesis 5. When Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. You know, I find it interesting that said he lived for 65 years, then after he had a son, he started walking with God. It, don't, don't children, like, make us go to our knees and for God? I think that's what happened to him. He's like, oh my God, I have a son. Help. I, so, I digress. Anyway, so... He lived a really long time, three centuries, three and a half centuries this guy lived. So I want to put this into perspective just a little bit, because we read these Old Testament stories, and we read these ages, but we just kind of, do we, we really take time to think about it? So let's just think about Enoch here. If he was taken from the earth, say, in 2016, so this year, July, maybe 14th, Enoch is no more. 2016. That means that he would have been born in the year 1651. Only about 20-something years before or after the pilgrims landed in Salem, Massachusetts. In fact, his year of his birth, 1651, was the year that Litchfield, Connecticut actually became a town. So this is how far back he goes. Now by the time of his 100th birthday... 1751, the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards has been going on for about 20 years. By the time he's about 130, 
which brings him around about uh, 1780, he would have seen the beginning of what we call Sunday school. Now, Sunday school was started in England in 1780, and it wasn't to get kids out of the main service so we can have a little peace and quiet in here and get them in the children's church room. Sunday school was actually created to um, bring the gospel to poor kids whose parents wouldn't bring them to church. And so now we see that in 1780, he would have been 130. He would have seen the onset of all this. By the time his 200th birthday comes around, Dwight Moody is not even a Christian yet. It'd be four more years before he actually got on the playing fields and, and an up-and-coming Christian star. By the time of his 300th birthday, Enoch would have lived through the American Revolution, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II. He's going to experience Vietnam and Korea and everything that's happened in the Middle East he would have been there and, and seen Lindbergh fly across the Atlantic Ocean and land in Paris. And I would think that in 2016, if we had some dude living for 365 years, social media might have had a little buzz when all of a sudden we just woke up and he was gone. So we would have probably heard about it. And then I'm sure Methuselah would have stopped in and asked me if we can have the memorial service here. And I would have said yes. And Methuselah would be 300 years old as he's honoring his dad. Now, Methuselah lived 969 years, so he's not going to die until the year 2686. So that means he gets to see flying cars. That puts things into perspective. And it says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. 300 years. But his life is it's kind of brief compared to his dad's and, and his son. And he lived during a time where it was very difficult to follow God. There, there was darkness over the earth. It was becoming a wicked place, a very violent place. In fact, in the next few chapters in the book of Genesis, Noah's story is going to come up and God's just going to start over and wipe everything out. But he, but he also, Enoch also was a prophet, so he just wasn't this guy who walked with God, but he, was, he had a prophetic voice. And we know this by a few verses that were written in the New Testament book of Jude. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he wasn't that feel good and want to encourage you, make you just kind of happy prophet. He was laying it down and telling people, things aren't going to go well for the ungodly. Things are not going to end well when God finally judges. But out of all of this stuff we know about him, the thing he's really most famous for is that verse in Genesis where it says he walked with God and then he was no more, because God took him. And so what that means is that God somehow took Enoch out of the world. We know that he didn't suffer death as, as we suffer it, that he was here one minute, and then he was gone. We don't know how this happens. We don't know how God did this. I would, I would hope it was like something really cool, but, but we don't know. It could have been just poof, and he's gone. 
But we do know because it says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So somehow his perishable body got transformed into the imperishable body that can be in his kingdom, in glory. But he did it in some miraculous way that we just fully don't understand. So this is kind of the background of who Enoch is or was. And so let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this is the writer, Hebrews. He's a pastor. He's writing to this church. And he's confirming the Genesis account that Enoch didn't suffer death, but that he was taken up. And he says he was one that pleased God. Now the words to please God or to walk with God, they, they both have the same meaning. To walk with God or to please God, it, it says that there was some intimate, sacred relationship that was taking place between a person and God. So there was something happening for, between Enoch and God. There was this mutual agreement of the soul. That's what it means to walk with somebody from a biblical perspective. It's not just, not just you're out for a walk and you're just kind of going down the Cheshire bike trail. It means that there's this agreement deeper than just we agreed to go in the same direction. There's a heart agreement. There's a soul agreement. But this, this picture of walking kind of, kind of um, illustrates it well for us. To walk with someone you have to agree to be going in the same direction. You can't walk with if you're moving separately. If I'm going south and someone's moving north, then we're not walking together. We have to be in tune with the destination. I liken it to, if you want to take it on a deeper perspective, it's like a husband and wife who are walking through life together. They're doing life together. There's this rhythm and a harmony that, that they're experiencing. Yes, I know every once in a while you hit a bad note, but overall, there's a rhythm and a harmony as husband and wife walk together. It's the same picture that we see with Enoch and God. He's walking in step with God, not moving faster than he is, not moving slower, not moving behind, but so he's in this, this rhythm. He's in step and it's pleasing to God, and he's walking with God. Galatians chapter 5, it says he's keeping in step with the spirits. Same direction, same path for hundreds of years. Sacred union, sacred fellowship. This is what we're invited to, walk with God and that sacredness, and that holiness. And as we walk with him, as we walk in faith, in step, the walk that we are on is a righteous walk. And hear me, it is righteous because of faith. It is righteous because of faith. And it is righteous that we, in that righteousness we have peace, in that, in that righteousness, we, we have the strength to turn away from sin and turn toward God. His whole life, 
The, the writer of Colossians would say his whole life, he set his mind on things above and not on earthly things. That's walking with God. And this is what we're invited to walk into and with him. And so we have this description. Enoch pleased God. He was commended as one who pleased him. And he had faith. By faith, he was taken and he pleased God. Now, it's, it's interesting that in Genesis, we don't see the mention of faith. The word faith is not used. But here we see, Enoch, by faith, Enoch was taken. He was commended as one who pleased Faith is the key to a walk with God. Last week we looked at Abel. Abel offered a more uh, acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. By what? By faith. And he was commended as righteous. See, we have to understand this, church, and this is really important that you get this. Faith precedes, faith produces a walk that pleases God. Faith precedes and faith produces a walk that pleases God. It's faith that pleases God. And this is important because the the writer of of the letter to the Hebrews, he's building on something here. And then he's going, it's kind of opened the door for, I think, one of the weightiest verses in all of Scripture which is Hebrews 11, verse 6, because it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible. It doesn't say without faith, it's kind of difficult. It doesn't say without faith, you might have to work a little harder, maybe study a little more, maybe memorize a little bit more scripture. No, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're striving or you're working or the more you do or the more you try. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, do you hear it? Without faith, have I said enough? Without faith, it's impossible for God to look upon you and smile. I'm not making this stuff up. In fact, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from my good works or my deeds, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's where our righteousness comes from, faith in Christ. By grace, you have been saved through, through faith, not by our good works. So now, again, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to a struggling church. He's speaking about this everyday, practical, get you through the day. Every believer can walk in faith, the everyday faith that's pleasing to God. And he begins to unpack it for us a little bit. And what I really like about his definition is it's very, very simple. You don't have to know or study the theological exegesis of Pauline doctrine on faith to understand what he's getting here, what he's getting to. He just kind of lays it out in very, very simple terms. And I know that if I can understand it, so can you. And without faith, it is impossible to please God 
Because anyone who comes to him must first what? First believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is faith. Wait, that's faith? That we would believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Maybe you're thinking, duh. Okay, believe he exists, duh. I mean, we're in church, hello. We believe he exists, of course we do. But think a little bit about our culture right now. Think a little bit about where we are as a society. Some people say that they believe in God, but their life has no evidence of that belief at all. Some people say they believe in God, but they've kind of created a God in their own image, which is a very comfortable God. Other people, I mean, we, we live in a modern paganistic society where anything is worshipped as long as it kind of makes you feel good and fits into what you want to happen in your life. And then we just have people who don't believe in the God of the Bible. Maybe atheism. But here's, here's what's very interesting. Do you realize that demons do better than our culture in the belief of God? Demons. Here's why. Because there is not one single demon in all of the universe that is a pagan or an atheist. There is not a single demonic force that is a pagan or an atheist. They are all monotheistic, Trinitarian believers in God. They might hate God. They might, they might harass those who are trying to follow God, but they believe in the one true God. And so we have to believe correctly about our God, the, the God of the Bible. If we're going to believe that he exists, we have to believe correctly of, of who he is, that he is, he is the same God from page one to the end. He is the same God in Genesis 1 where he creates the, the, in this rhythm of all creation, and he's the same God in the last chapter, in the last couple verses of Revelation when Jesus says, and yes, I am coming soon. It's the same God throughout. In Genesis chapter one, he's creating and he's in this rhythm and, and it's building. Each day builds upon each and the next one and he creates all of his stuff and he gets almost to the end and there's really no reason for all of the creation. We don't know why God is doing this until we get to the very end. He goes, bam, the last day of awesomeness. I'm creating people. And we've been created to govern in his image, this beautiful creation that he gives us. And so not only do we understand or believe that God is creator, but he's a personal creator. Psalm 139 says that he has knit us together in our mother's womb. That's how intimately we were known by him. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows us before we were ever born. Do you realize that as Enoch was walking the earth, God knew that you would be here today. That's the intimate creator God. That's who we believe exists. We also need to believe is the, he is the God of the miraculous. He saved people with amazing deeds throughout all of scripture. The plagues in Egypt. The big fish swallowed Jonah. That's just a messed up story right there. Imagine what he smelled like when he got burped up on the shore. I just think about that. He rolled back the Red Sea. 
he fed Israel in the desert for 40 years with more quail than they, could, they got sick on it. He spread manna all over the ground six days a week so that they can have food. Tap on the rock and out comes water. Over and over again, God has shown his power through the miraculous, mind-bending for us in our modern-day culture. And then the miracle of Christ. Not a revelation of a greater God, but a greater revelation of the one true God is Jesus Christ. In fact, remember 26 weeks ago when we started this little journey through Hebrews, the writer said that, that, uh, that in these last days he has spoken to us through or by his son. God's final revelation, his final word, the ultimate revelation of himself is Jesus Christ. And so for us now, we begin to believe in this greater revelation of God, and that is Christ. And there's no more beautiful wording than the hymn that we find in Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the God that we believe exists. That he is the creator, for in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Check this out. Whoever wins on Tuesday, look who's in charge. Do you understand that, Democrat? Do you understand that, Republican? So I don't want to read no Facebook nastiness on on Wednesday morning, all right? Because he's in charge. He's created it all. A hundred thousand million galaxies like our own with a hundred thousand million stars, and that's probably not even close to the right number, but you get the picture. Jesus created it all. Space is continually, science tells us that, that it's expanding, and I don't fully understand it, but something, nothing is turning into something. Jesus still creates because he's created it all. The things that we've discovered in science that have just gone, I can't believe this. Jesus created it all. The things that we haven't even discovered yet, Jesus created it all. And he's just waiting. This is going to be good when they see this. You and I, every person who has ever lived, every person who is living, every person who will ever live, Jesus has created them all. It's, it's estimated that every 24 hours, 353,000 children are born into the world. Jesus is creating them all. And all things have been created through him and for him. The, the, when, it, when it talks about that, through him and for him, it has this meaning that everything is moving toward Jesus. All of creation is moving toward him. It's, it's been created for him, it's been created through him, and he is the goal. He is the goal of all of this. It's all moving forward, and it's moving toward Christ as king and ruler. He is the alpha, the omega, the first, the last. 
It doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter what people don't believe. This is where creation is constantly moving toward, and it's moving toward Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This Jesus that we must believe in as part of our faith, that God exists, that Jesus exists, he is the sustainer of everything. He has created it all, and he sustains it all. He holds it all together. When the sun beams through your window on those cold days and you feel the warmth, Jesus sustains the orbit or, or the sun and the rays and every, it keeps it where it needs to be so you don't get burned to a crisp. And when you look and you see that little dust particle float by, I know some of you might see more, it's almost like a constellation, but, but, but when, when that one comes by, Jesus sustains that little dust particle. When I was in Africa, I saw this, this millipede. It was huge. It was like the size of my forearm. Well, maybe like this much. Like a bazillion legs. I know that makes it more than a million pea, but I don't know that number. And the legs squirt acid if they get on you, and, it, and, it, and it's really poisonous. Jesus sustains those. Why, I don't know. But he sustains even the Mombasa train. That's what they call it. He sustains all life. He sustains this planet. He makes sure that the rotation is correct, the axis is correct. He makes sure that the atmosphere and its chemical composition remain steady so that we can have life. He sustains the moon in its orbit and makes sure it's the right distance away and the right size and, and has the right gravitational force on the earth that keeps our tides at bay. Jesus sustains everything. He sustains our bodies, each breath, each beat of our heart, each blink of our eye, each blood cell that travels through our veins. Even the synapses in your brain, Jesus sustains it all. You're tracking with that? Everything his hand is in, and he keeps it moving. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things. To reconcile all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed. On the cross, Jesus, this God that we must believe in and have faith in, is the lover of our soul. He is the lover of our soul. He is invested in this creation, and he has reconciled us back to the Father by his own blood on the cross. And you begin, I begin anyway, and I begin to think, why? Why would this Jesus why would he go to the cross and save a world and save a people who have spit on him, beat him, killed him, reject him, do their own thing, denounce him? And, and that and that's goes throughout history. People have done that to this God, this Jesus. Why would he go to the cross and want to reconcile all things back to himself? And the simple answer we find in the scripture, for God so loved this world that he gave his only son. For God so loved this world that he gave his only son. This God is the lover of our souls. A love that was revealed in his son, that was expressed in the cross where he gave himself in his life for us. This is the God we're called to believe in. This is the God we're called to put our faith in. And when we take that to heart, when we begin to grip a hold of that, we begin to live differently. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, must believe that he has created, must believe that he is the ultimate goal of this all, must believe that that he is the lover of our soul, the sustainer of all things. This is what Enoch believed about God. He didn't have all, he didn't have the Bible to read and to understand. He didn't have, he didn't have science to, to show the, 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 um, the data that this just couldn't happen by chance. He had faith in this God. And when we believe those things, I mean, not just superficial, but when it gets down, deep down into your heart, that every breath you take is because Jesus is sustaining you and loves you, and he's the goal of all of this, of your life. Man, that's gotta change the way we live. Faith changes the way we live. We don't change the way we live and then we get some faith. Faith changes the way we live. Because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The simplicity of faith. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly. It's a great word. It means to put some effort in, to make it a priority, to be passionate about it, going after it. It's that importance. And see, last night as I was praying through this and and going over my notes, I have this sense in my spirit that this is where we fail as a church, as Christians. See, we can believe all that stuff about God, and and I, I do believe that for the majority. But to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, I'm not sure we do so good. We complain, and and I'm speaking about church, capital C. We complain that the world is going to hell in a basket. We complain that Hollywood is putting all these potty shows on. We complain about that candidate and this candidate. We complain about laws and the softening of laws and the morality of our culture. But it says that, that God will reward those who earnestly seek him. Could it, be, could it be that the church doesn't see the rewards of God because we have failed in our earnests to go after him, to make him the priority of our lives? Not just on Sunday morning, but I mean every day, all day. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. That's God's promise. And so why don't we have everything else? Are we not earnestly pressing in and making him the priority? I mean, for some, when was the last time you actually opened the word of God consistently because you were hungry to know him? And not out of guilt or shame because you haven't read your Bible in a long time. For some, when was the last time you you fell on your knees and prayed 
and they're, they're now they're callous because you've spent so much time on them over weeks and months. And, and your prayer life isn't just, hey, God, help me out of this situation, but you're seeking him with all your heart and soul. The problem in our culture is not our culture. Maybe, maybe it's the church because we've fallen away from earnestly seeking the things of God. See, his desire is to reward. Maybe we feel that God is so distant. He's, he's out there somewhere. And he doesn't feel close to us anymore. And I think he's, he's going, wait, wait, no, no. You remember that story that my son told about that prodigal son? I'm waiting for you to return. I want to rejoice over your return. I'm just waiting. If you would just come toward me, I'm going to run toward you. And I'm going to put a ring on your finger. I'm going to celebrate that my church has returned to me. He's waiting so let's not blame the condition of the world on the world. What else can the world do? Let's take a look inside. And do we really have faith? Do we really believe that God earnestly, earnestly rewards those? Or how's it say it? Yes, er, rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do we believe that? Like if you woke up in the morning and... There was this letter from God, right? And it was at the foot of your bed. And it said, Dear you, if you would just earnestly seek me, I'm going to just pour out my blessings upon you. Would that change the way you lived your day? Like if you woke up and it was written in the hand of God and you just, would that change the way you began to live your life? Here's the letter. Here it is. Promise after promise after promise after promise of his reward to those who will earnestly seek him. It's already been written. It's waiting for you to open the pages. He's waiting as that father would wait for his church, his children to come home so that he can bless them. It's not that he is far away from us. Maybe we have wandered a little too far from him. His promise is that he will reward. See, that's the faith that pleases God. Okay, here's how you please God. You believe that he wants to reward you. What? Not you better get it together. Not you better do. But just come home to me. and I want to love you and reward you. Earnestly seek him. Earnestly seek him. I want to encourage you all on Tuesday to vote. Vote your conscience. I am not telling anyone who to vote for. That's not my job. I believe we have Democrats here who love Jesus. I believe we have Republicans here who love Jesus. Maybe we've got some weed smokers that want Johnson. I don't know. Sorry. But on Wednesday morning when we wake up, on Wednesday morning when we wake up, God is still in control. Wednesday morning when we wake up, all of this is still moving toward Jesus, no matter who's in the Oval Office. He is sovereign. In fact, he knows the outcome. 
He already knows. You're all chomping at the bit, go, who's going to be? God's like, why do they even worry? I got this. I got this. I got Donald. I got Hillary. They ain't nothing. He sustains. He has created. He is the goal. He is the lover of our soul. He wants to bless those, reward those who will earnestly seek him. That's who the church should be. So we don't have to sweat nothing. Nothing. Because we don't vote for our king. He's already king. Father, I want to thank you for the love that you have for us and the grace that you pour out on us. We praise you. We love you. Help us to earnestly come after you as the giver of good blessing, reward in life. May your church grow in stature and in voice and in the brightness of light that has been gifted to us by Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you. We look to you. We anticipate the work that you will do in your church across the world. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.